You're listening to Marketing Major at Josh and Mo, a podcast created for students by students who are curious about marketing. to another episode of Marketing Major. I got Mo here, our co-host. Yeah, welcome back for another episode, everyone. And we also have uh, president of FKA, Rob Jennings. So we've had about, I think, nine of his employees. So it's a really big deal to actually get him on the podcast. It's about time. Yeah, yeah. actually, I'm a little bit insulted that it took you uh, nine people to get to me. So I was pretty intimidated yeah. to reach out to the president. <laughs> oh, first, <really>? so. <laughs> Usually start at the bottom and then work your way up. So Aren't yeah. you grilling me? I thought this was going the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were asking me questions. So I don't know why you're intimidated. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just natural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Rob, is the first question uh, to start off the podcast. How has marketing changed since you've been running the agency? Yeah. I mean, yeah, marketing has changed probably more in those 11 years than it's probably ever changed before. I think that's Probably the most important thing happening right now is just how change is the is the constant in marketing right now. And if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd have people on my staff with titles like analyst or things like that, I'd be quite surprised. So I think like data is obviously one of the most significant changes that we've seen, um, the importance of data and the quantification of marketing. That's probably the biggest concept coming out of the last 10 years, I'd say. Uh, whereas now we, <clears throat> in the old days, there was a lot of set it and forget it, get it up, get it out there. And certainly we had we had metrics for sure. There were always metrics. I mean, you know, sales has always been a pretty critical metric for marketing, at least from the retail and commercial side. But, um, and we had awareness and things like that that we would track obviously. But I think that the depth of the quantification that we do for marketing now is probably the biggest change that we've seen. And the, the need for service providers like ourselves, but also marketing teams internally to have robust data capabilities that's uh, that's fundamental these days. Um, you spoke of different metrics, like you always looked at sales as like one of the biggest indicators. Yeah, um, it still is today right. for sure. What's what's one of the the newest um, metrics that you're looking at that has like the biggest impact? I think probably the most important metric that I've seen evolve in marketing over the past you know decade or so is the concept, um, and I'm sure it existed before, but it's it's just more. It's more readily understood and worked with today is the, the notion of lifetime customer value. So the idea that as we've developed metrics like cost per acquisition or cost per lead or cost per new customer, whatever you want to call it, um, we've we, those are really important metrics because they are sort of the ultimate indicator of how effective the marketing is. And the flip side to that is obviously return on advertising or return on marketing spend. And traditionally, I think that was really looked at on a transactional or campaign level. So it's like, how much did they buy today and how much did it cost to make them buy that, right? That's a pretty traditional way of looking at marketing and its, and its return. Whereas today it's like, what is that customer actually worth to us for the rest of their life or the rest of their lifetime with us as a, as a customer, right? So it allows for different types of decision-making in marketing when you look at it that way. You might have a program, might have a product or service that actually has low margin and isn't very profitable. But if you if it is something that allows you to get connected to a customer and that customer interfaces with you for more valuable products and services over the lifetime of their relationship with you, then you've actually, you might've actually made a really good impact with that customer. It actually has an intense value to you. So the idea that we're moving away from percentage-based marketing, meaning like how much should we spend on marketing? 
3%, 5%, 10%. These are sort of numbers that were, I like 10% personally, being in the, the ad business, but <laughs> but uh, the idea that uh, we don't need to look at marketing that way, and instead we need to look at it in the sense that how much are we willing to spend to acquire a new customer, and that value is really predicated on how much we think that customer will return to us in profitability or margin or whatever over the lifetime of their relationship with us. So it's a pretty powerful concept because it actually means how much you should spend on marketing is essentially flipped into how many new customers do you want? And that's a really interesting idea because there's almost no finite limit necessarily to your budgeting process where the old days is like, this is our budget. How many customers can we get? It's more like now how many customers do we want? So that's a that's really interesting, interesting idea. Yeah. It's a little self-serving for someone in marketing. It's like, now there's no limit on budgets. Yeah. Yeah. As long as we keep delivering new customers, keep giving us money. But, so. <laughs> yeah, there's also no limit on budgets, but there's also no limit on the return of investment because you're really unsure what the in return is going to be, whether it's a lifetime customer or or how much they well, do business the, with you in the, the future. The idea is actually that we use data to actually, that we do understand that, that we actually have a very okay. clear picture of that lifetime customer value. And that's something that can't be manually quantified. That's something that we see coming to life really through the rise of sort of big data and machine learning where you know, we, we have clients who are who are inputting their entire historical customer database into AI or machine learning uh, tools, algorithms that are then defining for them the average lifetime of a customer, how long they stay with the organization, how much they spend across the length of that time, and even more importantly, what is the actual impact in, in margin, not in, not in top line revenue or sales or whatever, but actual margin to the organization. So what is the profitability impact of a single customer? And that could be based on how they transact with that customer. So that will be segmented out into different segments. Um, but it's, that's, that's happening right now. It's happening with clients that we work with. And that kind of information allows for a very different type of marketing decision making. And a lot of vendors and partners in the advertising space will assist with this. This is something that's very important and very big to Google right now. And uh, they have uh, products and services that um, would al that allow you to essentially, they'll work with you on that. They will help you define your customer lifetime value. So that's not something that's accessible, obviously, to your average small business uh, running AdWords or anything like that. But if you're operating at a much higher level, if your budgets are sufficient that they want to have, if your lifetime customer value to <laughs> Google is sufficient, then they will certainly work with you on that. And you can actually start to optimize your advertising to that value. So actually putting more money towards transactions that are likely to result in a more profitable long-term customer as opposed to transactions that may be a single transaction or maybe two transactions during the lifetime of that relationship. So you're actually now optimizing your spend and optimizing your advertising to activate those more valuable customers and perhaps even to some degree preferring uh, less of those other customers. So not all customers are equal, unfortunately. Not all clients are equal. So there is um, a need to segment out your own customer base and focus on the ones that are more profitable. And that's just sort of something that's come to, to life, I think, over the past, I would say, decade or so. Yeah, I think that that's a good discussion. Like we're getting into the change in uh, marketing. And I'd like to just like jump back a little bit sure. in terms of our listeners, because I think a lot of the things that you just said are quite new to them. So I'd like to go back to... Um, 
like our classes in marketing research. And yeah. uh, I think we have like 312 is all marketing research. We right. do right. demographics. You know, you spend a lot of time preparing this, this whole big yeah. uh, proposal on like you've done your demographics, your mm -hmm. secondary research and all yeah. this stuff. You but, create your own survey. You do your own right, market research, right. all yeah. that. Yeah. So I'd love to jump into just how uh, the strategy of marketing has changed a little bit too. Because I think myself included, I, I always thought, oh, I like the strategy behind marketing and that kind of planning thing. But it sounds like that's starting to change as well. Yeah, there's definitely been some changes there. I think there's sort of two streams that we can go in terms of discussing that. One is the notion of frameworks and agility trumping strategy. And that's something I talk about a lot, and I'm happy to sort of explore that area for, for everyone who's listening. Uh, I think the other area that's worth exploring is the rise of intent-driven marketing as a foil, perhaps, to demographics. So um, demographics are interesting. They're certainly helpful. I consider them a base point in marketing. But at the very end of the day, the comparison that I like to make is those demographics are usually driven by uh, research, obviously, which is helpful. But what you're determining in those cases are really your they're, they're assumptions, their best guesses. They're, they're a way of saying, well, for example, we looked at our data and the people who shop with us or who and I'm using I'm using uh sort of a lot of retail or commercial or even B2B examples in the way that I speak. But this is also relevant for not-for-profit and social marketing causes as well. And I can talk about that more later. But um, really the idea that you sort of look at your customer base and you sort of identify these segments demographically, and then you're going out to the market to try to find, essentially, it, you know, we do this today in digital too. It's sort of like lookalikes, like, okay, these people seem to like us. Let's go find more of these people, which is, you know, entirely valid. Um, but I think it's just sort of, it's it's really fundamental and rudimentary, and, and frankly, it's table stakes in terms of marketing. What's more important is, do I want to market to someone who happens to look kind of like the people that I've been marketing to already, or do I want to market to the person who actually wants what I have to offer, right? And that's what intent-driven marketing is. That's where we're using signals, um, typically from digital data, but more than that, because also real-world data is overlaid with that, um, using that data to go after people who actually want what we have to offer, who have demonstrated intent and behavior uh, that means they're actually ready to buy. And so that's really the question that I pose to people. It's like, do you want to market to people who look like other people who have bought what you have, or do you want to market to somebody who actually wants right now what you have? That's a pretty big difference, right? And certainly digital has been a driver in that. Um, you think about someone like Google again, who has, you know, five or six major platforms from, you know, Gmail to YouTube to the search platform, obviously, um, which is where the biggest bulk of their data comes from. But they're collecting across those platforms and aggregating a, an immense volume of data on every single one of us. And, you know, privacy aside, which is obviously a pretty big topic for people these days, that data is is anonymized. Like we don't, we don't, we're not really interested yet necessarily in what Josh is buying or doing. We want to know what a large group of Josh's are doing essentially, right? Though I do think one-to-one -one marketing is is the ultimate future and we, we will get there and that will have some very interesting consequences, I think, for privacy and our notions of privacy. But we want to use all that data, understand those, those signals. So Google, for example, is bringing all those signals together and they're saying, Josh is about to buy a house because they've actually collected enough information about you that they know you're ready to buy a house. 
And so for us as marketers, there's a whole, there, we'd like to sell you many things when you're in the process of buying a house. There's furniture we'd like to sell you. There's a mortgage we'd like to sell you. Uh, and I certainly have clients that sell furniture and I have clients that sell mortgages. So <laughs> let me know if you're going to buy a house actually, because <laughs> I could probably hook you up with some stuff. But, uh, you know, we want to know that information. We don't want to know if you look like other people that have bought mortgages, because there are so many unique things happening in your life behaviorally that you're doing. Uh, we want to know when you're actually getting close to doing that. So the digital information that we get allows us to do that. And, you know, I think part of the secret side of some of this, not people realize, is it's not just data that we're collecting from your behavior online. It's also data that's being overlaid from the real world. So um, credit card information, you know, these, these things are, these inputs are happening. They're being put into these machines that are being built to basically <laughs> predict your behavior. Essentially, we're really talking about predictive marketing in some ways. And, um, I often talk about, um, the notion that I think that what Google is ultimately building, cause I think, and I mentioned them a lot, you know, we are close partners with them. We do a lot of work with them. Um, but also they just are really a, a, a leader in this space, frankly, <laughs> I think we're going to get to a point where they will start predicting the future in some some way because they simply have so much data that they can get to that point. In the meantime, we'll use it to sell you things, but maybe in the future we can use it for, for greater good. But yeah, so that intent-driven marketing is the biggest change. And that's where I think demography still has a role and it's still important. And often you start there, you'll start a campaign with demography, but then you'll learn more from the campaign itself, the data and the results. Right. We'll share, we'll learn, we'll teach you more about the users, about the customers, sorry, and then you can actually focus in on the intent and what they want to buy, what they need to do in their life. What's interesting is that I've actually seen this one-to-one -one marketing being attempted. Um, not very well though. Like I used to work in, uh, in retail banking mm -hmm. and sometimes a customer would come in and you see a little indicator that say possibly looking for a house or, right. um, or a potential <clears throat> mortgage yes. cu customer and like, it wouldn't always be accurate. Like sometimes they would not be searching. It's not so, going to be accurate. Yeah. All the so time, it's yeah. going to be really interesting to see how that evolves and, and how much more on point and accurate it becomes might get too scary at a certain right. point, yeah. but it'll be really cool <clears throat> to see. I think in that example, what is, that's a great example uh, of that intent driven uh, marketing. Uh, in that example, uh, the, the bank that you were working at, they were probably relying primarily on their first party data, which is mm -hmm. the most viable data a company has yeah. is their own data, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, but that data is missing some other signals that would be really interesting, right? Sure. I'm sure there's some internet searches um, someone who's about to buy a house does that are pretty clear indicators if they were able to couple that with that first party data, mm -hmm. you're just a little bit closer to the truth. But exactly. I think banks have a, a massive advantage and that is why their data is so valuable. And that's why you see credit card companies that are essentially selling, selling data, I believe, to, to other parties. So there's a lot of data vendors in the world and they're all... And they're all different inputs into these processes and systems that we're, that we're making. So like I said, demography is not dead. I probably said demographics are dead in a speech or two. I say Verbatim. A I say a lot. Okay, cool. Yeah, I like that you're throwing that back at me. That's good. Um, I say a lot of things, you know, in, in conversation and those, and those talks that I often do, they, you know, I'm, I'm trying to generate conversation and the, you know, they, they need to be polarizing a little bit by nature, but I, I'm just trying to sort of posing questions and, and challenging some, you know, long held assumptions about marketing. Um, can we talk about how advertising is researched too and how that's kind of taken over as well? Yeah, sure. And I think I sort of alluded to that briefly where I said we're starting to learn things from the advertising. I think that to me that's the the most, it might be the coolest thing um, about advertising right now. And it's something that uh, I like to talk about a lot. Um, it's just the idea that uh, we learn so much. All the A lot of the data inputs that I'm talking about are actually results from advertising. So, you know, that we used to really rely 
heavily on on focus groups and market research, and we still do. I, like, I shouldn't say that we don't ever do it. But um, again, I, I consider it to be a foundation or a starting point. Um, once digital advertising in particular, though, almost everything is turning to digital, and I can talk more about that in a minute. Um, but the way that uh, digital advertising works is we get a copious amount of data back on the efficacy of the programs. Who's clicking on it? Who's not? Are they engaging with it? How long are they watching this video? Like for video advertising, we can tell. Have, are, they, are they watching it to five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds? Are they watching the whole five minute thing? Like we get, we get that data, right? Back from the video vendors, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or any of the other uh, networks that are, that are available for, for video pre-roll or midstream or whatever you have. Um, and that data is telling us things about the customer. It's telling, or about the audience. It's telling us things about the creative as well. You know, we used to test creative very frequently. Testing now really is probably just get it in market and see what happens, right? So um, we can move more quickly because of that. We can get to market quickly. We, you know, if we wait too long, if we over strategize, if we do too much market research and planning, uh, which is still, it still is based on some insights and assumptions that could be wrong. And by the time you get to market, you know, you, you, and you put something out there, you're going to get real data back real quick on what's actually happening. And, uh, it might prove sometimes that all that market research and planning you did was actually wrong, right? Like market research and planning is more often used, I think, by a lot of people to cover their butts. So it's like something goes out to market, it didn't work. And you're like, well, what can we do? We, we took it to focus group when they said they loved it. And then we went to the market and it's like, and no one liked it. And it's like, well, you know, when you ask people to provide opinions, they're going to provide opinions, right? Right or wrong. So. Um, people don't react to advertising in the way they react to it in a focus group. It's focus groups are, are, are an artificial environment that we create for people, um, you know, exchanging highly valuable opinions for essentially sandwiches and cookies at the end of the day. So it's like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And there's a lot of group dynamics and conversation that happen in focus groups. So, um, I don't discount them completely and we still do them. Um, but to me, putting that in front of people, uh, in the real world in the interruptive fashion that advertising works, you know, you don't, you don't seek out advertising often. Um, and so put it in front of people, see how they react, see what they think about it. Do they click on it? Do they not? That's going to tell you way more who clicks on it. You know, I love it when we find out that we're wrong. It's, it's, it's not something that I'm scared of. I, I, I embrace it. We find out that we're wrong sometimes and it's, it's really amazing. We had a really cool example. Uh, even this year where we were working for a client and they had uh, they had some personas built for their business and the personas indicated that the optimum customer for them was a, was an older male probably around the i'd say 40 45 54 kind of range maybe even a little bit older probably was like 55 55 or sorry 45 to 70 or something like that um and so we ran a campaign that was heavily based on targeting those people but when we did that we actually also targeted their interests so we found these tangential ways to intersect with them around things that they like so it wasn't really related to the product, but we sort of co-opted it and put it in the advertising. So we found out that these guys were actually interested in, uh, and you won't surprise you, maybe given their age, sports cars, uh, sport to baseball specifically, and I can't, and travel, luxury travel actually. So like high end travel. Um, so we ran advertising that had those things, but something kind of weird happened, we, you know, in the process of doing that, we also captured a bunch of people who, you know, weren't necessarily in that, in that dem demography, in that, in that demographic group. Um, we were ca also capturing probably because of that average, the creative also appealed to a younger audience in the sort of 25 to 34 range. And the cool thing that happened is when those younger audiences came to the website, they were actually converting, becoming customers at 
I think almost three times the rate of the older customers. Their value is actually less because they didn't have as much money because they were younger. Um, but because of the rate at which they were converting and becoming customers, they were actually more valuable and easy. They were easier to acquire, cheaper to acquire, and therefore were a better value than the older customers. So we pivoted the entire campaign to focus on the younger generation, and then we saw the results go through the roof. And that campaign, in fact, I I I'm, I love it because I'm I ex fully expect to win some advertising awards for for effectiveness, which are different than creative awards, right? So there's a bunch of programs you can enter to for advertising effectiveness, and I think that campaign is a great example of of that. And that only would have happened if we were watching the data. For the old days, you would have just done that campaign for the older audience and it would have ran for six months, and then you would have been like, well, it worked pretty good, but we actually found out that we could just make a small pivot there, well, a pretty big pivot actually, and completely change the game for that client. So is that what a, a framework is then strategy? Like a framework is just, is that just an overall idea and then you watch the data and, and like adjust from a there? Framework is process. So framework is saying that we are going to commit to doing something in this certain way. And it's more about the idea that we're going to build these, in, it's an interconnected framework of things that are happening. So, and the, probably the biggest, and, and so frameworks are, are interval based. So they're like, we're going to look at this and measure this every week or every two weeks or every month. And we make a firm commitment to that. And frameworks have feedback loops so that we're getting the, we're getting that feedback on that regular basis. And those are the really critical elements of, of frameworks. Um, and if you adhere to them and you work within them, and this definitely co-ops a lot of the, the vernacular and conversation and discussions around capital A agile, like agile marketing or agile software development. These are things that are sort of taken from that realm. But I, when I talk about it, I'm really talking about a lowercase, which is really about the flexibility and nimbleness and the learning that comes from agile. So it's like we put something out there and we prioritize getting something out there. So you've, in a framework driven approach, you're going to get something to market quicker than say a highly strategic driven approach where you're going to spend a lot of time figuring out and and essentially second guessing yourself and second guessing your audience and, and really sort of building in that, that butt covering that's required. And you're gonna spend months before you get it to market. In the framework driven approach, you're gonna make your best, you're gonna, you're gonna look at the data, make your best guess, you're gonna get something in the market right away. And then you're gonna learn from that immediately. And then it's iterative. You're changing and evolving it over time. So it's like every two weeks or every month, you're actually making small tweaks to the, the, the marketing program. And you're, you're, ideally you're making small incremental tweaks that are A-B tested. So you're making, you're changing it, but you're also got a control group that isn't changed and you're comparing the data between those two points of marketing and, and saying which one is which one's performing better. And as things perform better, you you apply those changes across and then you make another change. So it's it's evolutionary, essentially. It's like Darwinian advertising, right? So it's very evolutionary based and and it, it can be very effective. So that's why I, you know, very controversially say strategy is dead because I, I guess I'm just saying it's important to have a bias. Yeah, I'm not saying strategy is completely dead. I'm saying that's important to have a bias for action because you'll probably learn more from that action than you would from overthinking or over strategizing something. So would you agree that strategy has changed rather than, than it's dead? Is that maybe a better way of putting it? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> or has it changed so much that it's pretty much dead? <laughs> I have this theory, and I try to practice it, though it's it's hard sometimes to put all this stuff into practice um, because there's so many people who have adver aversions to it. To be perfectly honest, because it's just so contrary to the way that we've been doing things for so long. But I have this theory that the longer out you're looking, the less work you should spend on planning. So that's where I think the biggest change for strategy for me is. If someone's like Rob, I need to know 
what does the next five years look like? I'm like, well, I'm going to spend a heck of a lot less time on that than I am on your next, on your three month roadmap. Because what I like five years from now, like my, your five year plan is out of date five minutes after you make it. Like what's going to change in five years? Like you've seen what's happened over the last five years. Like what kind of correct assumptions are we going to make over the next five years until Google builds that predictive yeah. machine for us. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be, until yeah. they're predicting the future for us accurately, I don't think we're going to be able to do that with any confidence. So I feel like you're wasting your time and spinning your wheels if you put make this giant sort of arcane overwrought, you know, marketing cathedral. I call them marketing cathedrals. It's like these beautifully crafted, complicated things that are probably completely broken within six months, right? I so. think every student can relate to that too because <laughs> sure. I think one of my projects was like building a one to three year plan for like a marketing communication. Right. right. And I'm actually working on a product like, like that right now where we have to come yeah, just up don't with do it. Just don't have a plan for yeah. five years. And <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Don't do that work. I, okay. I actually, I actually love that. That's not no. what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, uh, because I do, uh, on some episodes, I do a quote of the day. I kind yeah. of take something out, out of what we're saying. And, um, I think it's super valuable. Um, when you said that the longer forward you're looking, the less planning you should be doing. I feel like that yeah. can probably apply to, your professional life, personal life, all of it, you know, because it's going to change so much once That's you get true. to that point. Um, I, I how much is your plan yeah, going to really be I, worth? I don't want you to not set objectives or goals either oh, yeah. in marketing <laughs> or business or personal life because right. I'm a big fan of designing your life. I mean, that's something I think that we should all do. And people who design their lives are infinitely more successful than those who don't. Um, but I think the idea is set objectives, set goals, but the path and the strategy that you intend to get to them, exactly. be prepared to let it be malleable because right. it's going to fun- things are going to fundamentally change in the world. You can't predict all the variables that are going to insert themselves into your business plan or your life, right? right. So uh, don't try to overthink that. Um, focus on the now and what you need to do. You know, what are the steps you need to take now to, to, to improve things and improve the return? Or, or I don't know if we're talking about life or marketing anymore, so I'm confused, but... <laughs> are they not the same yeah. thing? <laughs> yes, everything, everything is advertising. <laughs> exactly. So that's the end of this portion of the podcast, but we also talked to Rob about meta marketing, but it ran a little bit long. So we're just going to roll that out next week. It'll be a shorter podcast. So be sure to check out that. And thanks for tuning in on this one.